in the spring of 1999. I found myself in the York Correctional Facility for Women in Niantic, Connecticut. Now, what had happened was <laughs> a colleague of mine by the name of Miriam Therese Winter was teaching the women there, and she invited me to come and teach my course, Bad Girls of the Bible. I went into the prison in the role of teacher, but I had a lot to learn. I heard stories of these remarkable women, and every single one of them told the story of how they ended up in prison. For all of the differences in their origins, all the stories ended up in the same place. And I observed these two patterns. There was the pattern of the first-time offender who, because of the people she associated with, be it a boyfriend or a parent or the wrong friends, found herself in the wrong activities, the wrong place, at the wrong time. And the other pattern would be those who found their way out of prison and back in, the repeat offenders who couldn't break out of the cycle. There's something else I learned during my time at Niantic, and that is that prison is a terrible place. Now, when I say prison is a terrible place, I am not talking about the cradle-to-prison pipeline that means that based on the circumstances of your death, you might be more likely to go to prison than to college. That's true, but that's not what I'm talking about. And when I say prison is a terrible place, I'm not referring to the economy of prison that means that we have cities and communities in this country whose entire sustenance depends on the building and maintenance of Super 8 prisons, where we ask people to sit in small spaces for 23 hours a day. That's true, but that's not what I'm talking about. Today I'm talking about the existential experience of being limited and confined and cut off from all of the things that are life-giving and bring a sense of joy. I'm talking about being cut off from family and art and sunshine and good food. Prison is a terrible place because you're inside and everything you want is out. I want you to keep that in mind as we hear our scripture lesson today. Because Paul and Silas found themselves in prison, and like the women at the York Correctional Facility, they were guilty because of the company they kept. They were followers of Jesus, and the irony was that because they set someone free, they found themselves in prison. They were stripped and beaten with rods, and the text says they were thrown into the innermost part of the jail and shackled. The innermost part of the jail, the belly of the jail. In 
the stories of Paul and Silas, we learn that there's more than one kind of jail, and we learn that there are levels of incarceration. There are many ways that we can find ourselves imprisoned and many paths that we take to get there. Some of us will find ourselves imprisoned because of the people we associate with. Could be a dysfunctional family. Or it could be that we hang around people who are bound themselves and as a result we find ourselves limited and inhibited and forget our own power and possibilities. Some of us have been around negative and complaining people for so long we've forgotten how to smile. Some of us hang around people who are so used to being victims we forget that we have power. And some of us are accustomed to people who have had privilege for so long that we begin to think we deserve it. And some of us hang around people who are spiritually bereft so that we actually believe that God only has a little bit of grace, just enough for us and our friends. Some of us are imprisoned by association. But some of us find ourselves in jails of our own making. Self-doubt, worry, anxiety. Some of us suffer because we're in a prison of needing to be right all the time. Some of us are bound by our needs to fit in when God created us to stand out. And some of us are imprisoned because we worship the idol of perfectionism or the busyness of life. We've decided to be all things to all people and have forgotten the one thing that matters most. And dare I say, we need to remember that Paul and Silas were in prison for following Jesus. Okay, so here it is. People will say over and over again, they don't teach you the real stuff in seminary. Well, here's the real stuff, okay? Here it is. Sometimes you will feel like you have been beaten down when you're trying to do what's right. There will be moments in your journey, times when you are following the call that God has placed on your life, and as a result will feel confined and limited and cut off. Serving God's people sometimes is going to feel a little bit like a prison sentence. <laughs> and whether you find yourself in prison because of those you associate with, or whether it's a prison of your own making, or you feel imprisoned even as you serve God, I want to suggest to you that at some point in your life, you are going to want to know how to get out. And who better to learn from than our biblical repeat offenders? <laughs> the scripture passage tells us that they were singing and praying. Now, I know that there are probably one or two people in here who are so holy that if they were in this situation, that is what they would do immediately. <laughs> we don't have to worry about them. They're going to be like Enoch. They're just going to be taken up. Um, but for the rest of us, we may want to know why we should sing and why we should pray when we feel imprisoned. And the first reason is easy. 
Pray because it was time to pray. Pray because it's time to pray. The Bible tells us to pray without ceasing, and I cannot think of a time that's not a good time to pray. But the fact of the matter is there are moments in our lives when prayer is the only option. Paul and Silas were stripped and beaten and shackled in the underbelly of a jail. They had limited movement and few options. And there are moments in our lives when we hit rock bottom, and at that midnight moment, all you can do is call on the name of Jesus. Paul and Silas learn from being imprisoned enough times that there really is no such thing as no options or no recourse or no hope if you can pray. Pray because it's time. Another reason we should pray is because we need examples. Paul and Silas were not the only people in prison. And you aren't the only person in prison. You're not the first person who's felt confined, and you won't be the last. But the people who are around you need to know how this thing works. They need to know what it looks like when someone is struggling, how to get free. And sometimes we think that because we are called that we're supposed to present in a perfect way, when in fact what the people we serve need to see is an authentic saint in process. I tell the story often of the first time I had to serve as a TA at Yale Divinity School, and it was the Old Testament survey class, and I realized the night before class started that I didn't know everything. <laughs> I know. It took me all that time to realize I didn't know everything. And I was petrified about what was going to happen if someone asked me a question and I didn't have the answer. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, I called a friend of mine who said, Say, I don't know. <laughs> it never occurred to me to say, I don't know. But what happens when we model our imperfect perfection? What happens when we show people that sometimes we don't know what to do, and in that moment, we pray? Jesus didn't just tell his disciples to pray. He showed them how. And Paul and Silas, I know when they were in that prison singing and praying, were not thinking about any of us. They weren't thinking about us. But because they did what they did, we've been blessed by their experience. You will never know how many times you will bless someone and you won't even remember what it is that you did. When we authentically live out our lives in faith, we can be a real example. The final reason you should pray is because it works. <laughs> it really does. We say that prayer changes things, but I wonder if, in fact, it's that prayer changes us. I imagine, this is my sanctified imagination, that Paul and Silas when it says singing and praying, what they were really doing was singing the Psalms. And I think that they were singing Psalm 22-3.
that says God inhabits the praises of Israel. And that then they went to Psalm 62.8, where we're instructed to pour out our hearts to God. And then they moved to Psalm 46.1, where we read that God is our refuge. That they prayed the Psalms and acted in faith, and God caused an earthquake to happen. An earthquake is literally when the shape of the world changes, where the world actually shifts. And I want you to hold on to this because I believe that the way prayer changes us is equivalent to something we would call terraforming. Now, if you're a sci-fi geek, you know what terraforming is. Terraforming is the hypothetical process of deliberately modifying the atmosphere, temperature, surface, or ecology of an environment to sustain a different form of life. And sisters and brothers, when we pray, I believe that we are spiritually modifying the atmosphere, temperature, surface, and ecology of our beings to make room for God to get in there and do something that couldn't be done before. When we pray, we open up space for God to do something new in us. And when God does something new in us, God changes the world. This is important because not everybody who prays and sings gets out of jail. <laughs> Paul and Silas were not released until the next day. Some of us will have an immediate breakthrough and some of us will find ourselves released in stages. And some of us will find ourselves like the children of Israel, dying in the wilderness, not yet seeing all that God has for us. But what we do know is that when we open ourselves to the power of prayer and the Holy Spirit comes in, we give God room to shake things up and make a difference in our worlds. So the next time you find yourself in jail, find yourself a song and pray your way to an earthquake.